We're finishing up the book of Colossians uh, today, and then for the rest of the month we'll be in Philemon, and then starting in Advent we will go to Matthew. We'll camp in Matthew for a little while, so uh, this has been a great book. Turn to Colossians 4, we'll start at verse 7 and read through the end of the chapter. And please listen carefully as this is God's word uh, given for us. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greet you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Areopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church at her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us for one last time to this wonderful book that speaks of the supremacy of Christ. We're often too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted to see Jesus. So this morning we ask that you would refocus our hearts and minds to look at Jesus and the difference he makes for our lives. And to do that, we need your word to be living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. And so by the power of your spirit, use this scripture to bring about needed change in each one of us this day. As always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you ever walk into the church office, uh, you'll notice on the wall on your right as you walk in is a collage of photographs. And they're pictures of you. Random pictures which we rotate with the seasons of people in the church. And uh, seeing it is a great reminder for the pastors uh, that we're here to serve you. And we're here to preach, to teach, to counsel, encourage, pray for, and sometimes simply to be there for you. And at the moment, one of my uh, favorite pictures in the collage is one taken from an officer's retreat a few years ago. It is a motley crew of 13. And in the picture, we're smiling and laughing, uh, probably at something that was just said that was horribly inappropriate. Did I just say that out loud? <laughs> um, anyway, it's a great picture of a great moment, a great fellowship, and I'm reminded of how close this group can be. Of course, we do have a session meeting Tuesday 
uh, night and I'll probably be frustrated enough to take the picture and shred it. But for now, it's a nice memory. And as the Apostle Paul closes uh, Colossians, he closes this letter with a verbal group photograph. He's including in it a number of uh, those people who've helped him in his ministry while he's been imprisoned in Rome. He gives recognition to some of the unsung heroes of the New Testament. And by so doing, he uses them as a means of encouragement to those people who are reading uh, this letter. And this section adds a warm personal touch which, to, to what has largely been a doctrinal uh, letter. And that many of those people mentioned had stuck with Paul for several years indicates the level of loyalty that he inspires. Now back at the beginning of September when we started uh, the book of Colossians, I told you that Paul's heartfelt commendation for this church rose from the miracle uh, that had taken place uh, in Colossae. There was this poor pagan people without God and without hope in this world, and they had found Christ. And their lives had been changed, and some remarkable things had happened. And so for Paul, these people had become indispensable assets to his ministry. And he was well aware when it came to ministry, he couldn't do it alone, that no one can. And God's leaders have always depended on others to support them in their work. And the Apostle Paul never ministered alone. Uh, he shared his first leadership opportunity in the uh, church in Antioch with four other men. And throughout the years of his missionary travels, he always had companions. The only time we find him alone is in Acts 17 for a brief time in Athens. And so now he's a prisoner in Rome, and although he's a prisoner, he writes this letter to the Colossians, and he tells them he's still not alone. The men he names are not, uh, by and large, well-known figures. But each, however, is special uh, to Paul, and each is willing to pay the price of associating with this prisoner. And so we may not have uh, here the, quite the mixed group of the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, but we do have a unique group. You might call it the Fellowship of the King. So turn with me to Colossians 4, starting at verse 7. Let's see what makes this fellowship unique. I'm not going to go today verse by verse like I normally do. Um, but this morning we're going to look at the fellowship uh, by what describes this group. And the first thing that describes them is seeing that this fellowship overcomes barriers. The fellowship overcomes barriers. In this passage, six individuals send greetings through Paul uh, from Rome to the Colossian church. And three were Jews and three are Gentiles. And the three Jews are Aristarchus, uh, Mark, and Jesus called Justice. Paul says of them in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And so he names uh, those three men as the Jews that are among them. But then he goes on to name uh, the Gentiles. He says, uh, starting at verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 
For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Areopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So language, nationality, differences in culture, differences in religion, they've divided that world into all sorts of hostile camps, very much as the way they've divided our world into all sorts of hostile camps. And then, as many places now, they're basically held together by the sword, by the power of the state. In that case, it was Rome. So now, as part of the church, all these diverse camps are meeting together, not only willingly, but they're having great fellowship uh, with one another. And from the very beginning, Jesus has demonstrated that this is the intent of the gospel. You remember, he crossed forbidden barriers in reaching out to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You know, and the woman was amazed, and the Jews who heard it were even more so uh, amazed. This hatred between uh, Judea and Samaria had lasted for over 400 years. And the Jews had kept their racial purity during the Babylonian captivity, but the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with all of the Assyrian invaders. And to Jewish eyes, this was unforgivable. And also the Samaritans had built a rival temple because Jerusalem had been destroyed, so they built a new temple, but then the Jews came and destroyed that temple. So in Christ's time, there was tremendous hatred that reigned between these two groups. And you add to the fact that the Samaritan woman, uh, the, the Samaritan in the story in John 4 is a woman. So Jesus not only speaks to her, he asks her for something to drink. She gives it to him, assuming that he used her drinking utensil would be thereby ceremonially defiled. The Jews would view that as a scandalous act. So Jesus is just sort of leaping over all the conventional barriers of his day. And in so doing, he models one of the, the great things about the church, that Jesus not only reaches people like me, and he uh, doesn't just reach people like you, and he doesn't just reach rich people or poor people, he reaches out to all groups, all kinds of people everywhere, and brings us together. He overcomes all the barriers. And this is what was happening in Rome and elsewhere, but Paul's specifically talking about Rome, and it hadn't been easy, because the Gentiles in Rome were pretty much ready to mix. Cosmopolitan city, they were used to that. But the Jewish believers in Rome were not. They were used to sort of protecting their group. And they had legally demanded, very legalistically demanded, that the Gentiles also need to follow the Jewish ceremonial law. And so when Paul comes to Rome, he gets sort of a cool reception from the Jewish believers and even deals with the fact that they weren't sure about the authenticity of his uh, missionary charge, of his apostleship. But three Jews help him, the three guys that are named here. They're receptive, they're loving, they understand grace, they send their greetings to the Colossian church. It is impossible to hold those kind of racial, ethnic, religious, cultural, uh, national prejudices in our heart and still claim to be spirit-filled. Because that goes against everything that Christ taught and teaches. And when Christians refuse fellowship with other uh, healthy, spirit-filled believers, 
There's only one conclusion. Something's wrong in their relationship with God, either for one or both of them. When we're having fellowship with the Lord, then we need to be able to have fellowship with each other, uh, regardless of our background. And these three Jewish believers in Rome are experiencing that type of fellowship. And now it's overflowing to the Colossians. So there's no way that these men who love God, walking in fellowship with him, even though they're Jew and Gentile, would not have fellowship with each other. That's what real fellowship brings. And if two believers can't be reconciled, then one or the other of them is not in fellowship with God. So the question is, is there someone that you're not reconciled with? Is there someone you can't forgive that you have no desire to forgive? Even if that person has sought your forgiveness. If so, the answer is found in Christ. You need to be filled with the Spirit, filled with the fullness of Christ, as Paul says. If you're full of Christ, you'll be like him, be forgiving and able to reconcile and restore relationships. An inability to forgive reveals a heart that's not fully focused on Christ. And in order to regain that ability to restore relationships, you have to focus on restoring your relationship with Christ. Something we're learning in the marriage Sunday school class, to fix the horizontal relationship, you first have to start with the vertical relationship. And then your fellowship with him results in fellowship with others. Because fellowship overcomes all sorts of barriers. But that's not the only thing fellowship does. Because just as increased spiritual maturity produces greater fellowship, so we see that fellowship produces greater spiritual maturity. They work together. So we see now fellowship produces maturity. The maturity of the Christian fellowship is seen in the desire of these men to send greetings to this church in uh, Colossae. Uh, most of the men listed here, with uh, two exceptions, but of the ten, eight of them had never been, as far as we know, to Colossae. But they loved the believers there anyways. They understood they're all part of the team. And what Jesus says specifically about Epaphras suggests something of what they were like. Let's go back to verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Areopolis. Now, Epaphras is the one who came from the Colossian church. He came all the way to Rome because he was concerned about the heresy of Christ plus religion, which threatened to rob the Colossians of their faithfulness to Jesus. And so Epaphras has had a profound concern for his fellow believers, particularly in his home church. And Paul represents him here as always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Some versions translate that as wrestling in prayer. From the Greek word used there for struggling and wrestling, we get our English word agonize. And Paul had watched Epaphras pray for his church, specifically for the people in his church. And this is the word that comes to mind that best describes his prayer. Struggling, wrestling, agonizing in prayer. And it's the same word that describes Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
In Luke 22, when he sweat drops of blood, Paul uses the same word here to describe Epaphras praying for his church. And it shows that Epaphras loves these people. He cares about these people. He prayed that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And his prayer is specifically directed against the false teachers who are offering perfection and fullness through their system of Christ plus religion. And he's, the Colossians already have everything they needed in Christ. And Epaphras is praying, God, help them to stay there. There's this selfless, giving, large-hearted prayer for the people that he knew and the people that he loved and the people on whose behalf he traveled from Asia Minor all the way to Rome to let the Apostle Paul know exactly what's going on. And Paul concludes this brief portrait of Epaphras by saying, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. That phrase, worked hard for you, implies deep concern, great effort, and going to great a personal pain and distress for someone else. And that's the way it was with Epaphras and, and with his co-workers. His love for the saints made him vulnerable to their burdens. And I was thinking about that, and I think it's because we have something wonderful to uh, offer others. And just within the context of the church, already assuming the people we're talking about are all believers. But we read in 1 John chapter 1, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. The primary motivation behind uh, the Apostle John's proclaiming the gospel was that his hearers be brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son, and thus they would be brought into fellowship with John and the church. Fellowship with Christ brings fellowship with other believers. And the key to this quality of fellowship is uh, with all the others, the quality of fellowship with people in the church is the quality of our fellowship with God. Again, the vertical determines the horizontal. And if the horizontal's not right, you got to go to the vertical to fix it. You have to go to God. And those with the richest fellowship with God have the richest fellowship with each other. And you think about it, they same, share the same view of reality as they look at the world around them, they share the same view of self, understand the reality of sin as it affects the human personality, share the same values and ethical standards, same love for Christ and love for his church. Those are all important concepts, particularly this week. Uh, there's going to be a major event this week. and We're going to vote for a new president. And... I don't tell you who to vote for, but I'll tell you first, like Epaphras, we should be struggling in prayer. And we need to be thinking about what are the, uh, you know, do we share the same view of reality? Do we share the same values and ethical standards? Those are important questions that you need to consider. But this isn't a perfect church. The Colossian church wasn't a perfect church. The church in Rome wasn't perfect. church in Leesburg's not perfect. And we can't pretend that there weren't any problems uh, in any of those churches. Every church has problems. Every church has people who have problems, have people who don't get along. Every church has people who are mature and those who aren't. 
And most of the problems that churches face aren't a lack of programs or poor theology, although they can exist. But like every other arena of life, most of the problems within churches are driven by personality conflicts. That somebody just doesn't get along with somebody else. And the Colossian church is no different. And here Paul teaches us something of great importance. And that's because he wants us to know that fellowship transcends grievances. Fellowship transcends grievances. Now, fellowship encompasses everyone. It encompasses your best friends, the people you're closest to. But it also encompasses those people that you might consider marginal people. What do I mean? Paul includes in his greetings, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, most of us are familiar with Luke. He's the only uh, Gentile writer of any of the books in the New Testament. He's this much-loved Christian, physician, devoted friend, careful historian, all in one. But Demas is another story. What happened to Demas? We don't know. All we know is that some of the last words the Apostle Paul wrote before his Roman execution expresses heartbreak. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now maybe Demas feared being executed with Paul and he fled uh, to safety. Maybe he succumbed to immorality. Maybe he simply caved into the relentless temptation of a more comfortable, prosperous life in the large, cosmopolitan, pluralistic, wealthy, culturally interesting city of Leesburg. I mean Thessalonica. Because whatever it was, Paul sees it as falling in love with the present world. He says he's embraced the world. And maybe Paul's already aware of Demas's spiritual slide because in his greeting here at the end of Colossians, he's the only one about whose there's no comment. He just says, and Demas. And Christian fellowship isn't perfect. It's not meant to be perfect. It has to be stretching. Sometimes you have to fellowship with people who come to church, who hang around on the fringes of fellowship, who never really commit, disappear when they find something they think looks better. They'll tell you they're leaving the church, but sadly, often in reality, they're walking away from Christ. And they've been seduced by Christ plus religion. Our Lord even takes in those who disappoint Him and hurt Him. And so our fellowship in Christ makes us people who are supposed to have a greater capacity for joy, but also a greater capacity for sorrow. Because believers at their worst are capable of holding on to grievances. And we can be stubborn and unchanging and unforgiving. But just a little bit later in this letter to Timothy, in the very next verse, Paul says something that's very hope-giving and life-giving. In 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Remember Mark? Mark was the first one to desert the team. Back in the early days, Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first great missionary journey when they set out from Antioch. And after ministering in Cyprus, John Mark abandoned Paul when they reached the shores of uh, Pamphylia and returned to Jerusalem. And we don't know why. 
We can guess from his writings that the hardships were incredible. The only thing I could compare him to would be like the hardships experienced by soldiers in a combat zone. And later, after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Paul's planning another journey, and Barnabas wants to bring Mark back on the team. And Paul refuses. And the result is this famous separation as Barnabas uh, takes John Mark with him and Paul recruits Silas. And you get the idea that Paul's not really running the Holy Land tours. And he doesn't want anybody who's been faint-hearted on his team. But now it's 12 years later and John Mark is in Rome and he's ministering to Paul in prison. And Paul sends Mark's greetings to the Colossians and he commends them. Look at verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. In the accompanying letter to Philemon, which will start looking at next week. He calls him his fellow worker. So once again, here we find Mark at the end of Paul's life, fully reconciled to and fully trusted by Paul and useful for the gospel ministry. Demas and Mark serve as contrasts here. One provides a word of warning and the other provides a word of hope. And as people stumble in many ways, we need both warning and hope. Demas began well, but he doesn't appear to end well. Having once fought alongside of Paul in kingdom battles, he seems to have sided with the enemy. And so the warning uh, comes to us here in, uh, from Peter, 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our enemy is very real and very crafty, and he threatens and seduces. And even those who start strong and become leaders, like Demas, are susceptible to his deception. But Mark, on the other hand, gives us hope. He had a weak start, and he didn't appear to have the right stuff. And he disappointed his leaders and his, and his friends by leaving them in the heat of battle when he went home. But Mark ends well. At some point, he rejoined the battle and proved to be a faithful, trusted, useful warrior for the gospel. Mark would later go on to serve the apostle Peter, and who in his own letters refers, refers to Mark as his son. And it is this Mark who would later write the gospel based on what he was taught by Peter. So let us then be on our guard. We live with uh, indwelling sin that honest inclines us to insanity because it's inclined uh, us to believe lies that lead to our destruction. And when we're feeling that powerful pull of worldly temptation, we need to take Paul's exhortation very seriously, 1 Timothy 6, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now Paul knows what he's talking about. He has watched those who've labored with him in the gospel and he's watched them fall. But let us remember that God is in the business of forgiving sins and reconciling stumbling fallen sinners to himself and restoring them to useful service. 
And Paul knew this as well, and it's also part of his story. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We don't know the last word on Demas. I hope he repented in the end. But because of Mark, we know that failure doesn't have to be the last word for us. Rather, our last words can be, but I received mercy. And whatever may have happened in the past, let us resolve to pursue Jesus as our treasure and seek to live lives of useful service to him from this day forward. We're shortly going to come to the Lord's table. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. Have communion. Think about what you really deserve from God. And then think about what you get. And then come to the Lord's table because you get mercy. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are people who love fellowship as long as it's not inconvenient. As long as it's not forcing us to deal with uh, difficult people. As long as it's fun and involves food, then we're fine. But when fellowship demands commitment and forgiveness and maturity, then we struggle. And Lord, you know we want to be a place of grace where people's faith is so evident despite the pressures of the world. We want to be a church where our love for each other is constantly refreshing. We want to be a people whose open Christ laid up for us in heaven is a driving motivation to live in such a way that other people take notice. Lord, this morning we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, the word of truth, the gospel, came into our hearts and changed our lives. Thank you that Jesus is a friend of sinners like us. Thank you that Jesus makes dead people live. Thank you that you love us far more than we'll ever deserve. We thank you for all these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.